I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. We like to call this Conspiracy Theory Thursday. But I want to start you out with something positive first. Uh, after that, we'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the list at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want you to think back not that many years ago to when the media and many politicians mocked Donald Trump, President Trump, for creating Space Force. I know they made all kinds of jokes. Well, it's going to be like Star Wars or Star Trek, and what kind of uniforms are they going to wear? They mocked it tremendously. And yet, I'll point out two things to you. One you know already, and that is that Space Force is one of the branches of the service that's actually attracting people, young Americans, to sign up. Although Space Force has its own problems under Joe Biden right now, they've actually had some of their leadership people say, well, we're going to hire a diverse and equitable staff of people. And we may care more about their politics or about uh, what's between their legs instead of what's between their ears. They got some of that nonsense going on. But I think that's largely a product of being part of the Biden administration. When Trump comes in in January of next year and he cleans house at the military, and I mean the upper leadership, not the lower ranks, the upper leadership that buys into all this woke DEI CRT nonsense where you hire people uh, based on their skin color, based on their ethnicity, based on their sexual preference, instead of hiring men and women who know how to get the job done. Then Space Force and the other branches of the military will be fixed up. But consider this. Donald Trump, in deciding that America needed to have Space Force, was mocked at the time. Except that this week, you remember a couple of days ago when I told you that Representative Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, was begging the White House, will you please declassify these new developments that we've learned about so the American public can know what's going on? It is Russia's potential development of weapons, nuclear weapons in space. Now, do they know exactly what it is? No, they don't. Could it be a nuke, uh, an actual nuclear weapon in space? It might be. Could it also be a satellite that is powered uh, with a nuclear core of some kind that is used as a jammer or an anti-satellite weapon? It could be that as well. Either way, it's bad news uh, because if we didn't have Space Force, well, then we have less capability to answer this up. But Just the News, our friend John Solomon at JustTheNews.com confirmed today that Russia has obtained an emerging anti-satellite weapon But they said it can't directly cause physical destruction on Earth directly. Now, understand what he means by that. Because if you've got a weapon that you could use to take out, say, communication satellites, can you imagine the kind of hit that America could take by having its communications knocked out? Not just military communications, which are, of course, most important, but also just commercial communications. 
I'm not talking about taking down the director dish TV satellites and all of a sudden you can't watch movies. I'm talking about the ability just to communicate within within our country. And then can you imagine if they took out a substantial part of GPS satellites? That might be a target in any kind of military exchange. Take out GPS. That doesn't just inconvenience you and me in our cars wanting to find a particular address. That might put the country very much at risk because GPS is absolutely critical for things like commercial airlines. It's critical for the military. Well, what is White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby saying? He says, well, the weapon is not fully operational yet, and officials are looking into the information they have on it. He says, first, this is not an active capability that's been deployed, and though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, says John Kirby, there's no immediate threat to anybody's safety. Can you imagine how much chaos you could create in any country if you start knocking out Internet, communications, voice communications, and GPS? Just imagine the outcome of that. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Oh, and by the way, our poll on X, we put up a brand new question every day. It used to be called the Twitter poll. Now it's the X poll. Should it be illegal to sell cold beer and seltzer? Now, if you ask me about drunk drivers, I have no patience with drunk drivers. I have no sympathy for drunk drivers. My mom was killed by a drunk driver. But in Tennessee, they've decided to go after drunk driving by having a bill. The bill is called House Bill 2845, the Tennessee Prevention of Drunk Driving Act. And you know how they plan to go after it? Make it difficult or illegal to sell refrigerated cold beer and seltzer. As though the hardcore drinker out there, the one who doesn't go to a bar but picks up a cold six-pack and starts drinking it behind the wheel of the car, that if you only could get warm beer or you'd have to bring your old, your own cold beer from home, from your own refrigerator, that if you diminished the number of cold beers available for sale to people who are driving, that that would, drive, that would, uh, that would diminish drunk driving? I don't buy it. I don't think it would make much of a difference at all. People would work around it very, very easily. But the poll on X today, should it be illegal to sell cold beer and seltzers? My answer to that is no. I don't think it's going to do any good. I think it's going to inconvenience an awful lot of people without having any positive outcome to it. But you can consider the question. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Uh, brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long, long time ago. You can join, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Let's go to uh, Let's go to Chris. Hey, Chris, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? I love. I I know it's you're not answering the question that you want to answer right now. But to don't you think if we stop hiring these people that are coming in by the droves because they only want a job, okay? Yep. They only come here for work. Yep. They don't come here for anything else because the money leaves this country. I agree. This country that I love so dearly, you know, but. If you stop penalizing, 
the people that hire, don't you think it might work? I can tell you why it won't, but there's a better way to do it, Chris. If you go out and say, we're going to find every illegal working in a workplace, we're going to punish, punish the business owner, you have to prove in court beyond a reasonable doubt that that man or woman knowingly hired the illegal alien. And they're going to beat it most of the time because they're going to say, I'm not a document examiner. I don't know whether their ID was uh, all the government requires you to do is fill out that I-9. But there is a way to do it. You go after them through the IRS. You tell every business in America, if you employ people, when you file your taxes, you have to show every one of your employees has a matching name and social and is E-verified. If they're not, you cannot deduct the wages that you paid them. That will mean a, well, gigantic change for everybody who runs a small business. It won't be nearly as hard, and it can get done very quickly. Lars, follow him on Twitter at Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails in a moment. I'm going to talk to my friend Christian Toto. Usually we, we visit with Christian, who's the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast on Fridays. Talk a little bit about movies today. We're going to do it a day early. Hey, Christian, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, there are a couple of movies I want to ask you about. But first, there's a new uh, a, a new biopic about Bob Marley, and I want to know about that. You you, you wrote about that at uh, at Hollywood in Toto. I did. You know, I'm not a huge reggae fan, but I nor am I. I have to admit, when I'm when I'm out in public with some friends, and maybe there's some uh, alcoholic beverages, and, and Bob Marley's <laughs> music comes on, I'm there. So you know, listen, he's a, a consequential music figure for sure. Yep. Died tragically young. I think he was 36 when he passed from cancer. And I just thought this is a great subject for a, a biopic, and in part because, you know, he had a, a, a healing power among political factions, at least in Jamaica. That was sort of the, the reputation he had, that he was sort of in a way above it all in a way. And I mean, it in, uh, you know, trying to bring people together rather than being divisive. And of course, the music and the early death is just so much there that you can look at. And, uh, and I think the movie misses a lot of it. Uh, it. It's interesting because a lot of biopics, they do the cradle to grave, or they have a kind of a, a really expansive look at the artist. But here, it's basically looking at several years of his life and a, a pretty tight focus. And I think that could work. But I think the weirdest part of the movie is that there are moments in the beginning and moments at the end where they have like a text crawl that explains part of his life and part of the things that he did. And I'm thinking... That sounds great. Why don't you show that on the screen? <laughs> so I, I just think they've made us some really tactical errors here. The actor who's playing Marley is quite good. His name is Kingsley Ben-Adir. I believe I'm pronouncing yep. it correctly. We've seen him a time or two before. He played Barack Obama a few years ago. Very good performance. Listen, it's tough to capture an icon. I think he comes pretty darn close. So he's not the problem at all. It's just I think there's just something missing here. I think they miss some great moments. The music is fine. Of course, the music is as good as it always is. But uh I don't know. I think we've seen some great biopics in the past. Walk the Line, Ray with Jamie Foxx. This one just doesn't measure up. Yeah, I just wonder about that. You know, when you're making movies, if you say, well, I'm going to make the movie this way. I'm going to have this narrow focus. And then we're going to have to have a whole bunch of textual material at the front and the back to explain it all. 
You say, haven't you kind of missed the point of being a filmmaker? The film is supposed to tell the story. Words, sound, pictures, but not text on the screen. What, what do you think made them want to do it that way? Or did they realize after the fact, we've made this movie, but we got to explain a bunch of stuff. So we'll slap it on the front and back. Or do you think that was the plan from the get-go? Uh, but my short answer is I don't know why they chose this path. I, I do think that maybe you know, not focusing, not having the actor, you know, age before our eyes or focusing too much on his childhood. I think there's some wisdom to a tighter approach for sure. Also, I want to mention that there are several Marley family members who were co-producers on the film. And one of the things about Bob Marley was he was uh, stepping out on his wife early and often. It's, it's, not a, it's not a safe secret that he was doing that. And the movie, I mean, to say it oh so gently touches on that part of his life is is an understatement. It's barely suggested. And I think that would have been interesting. It would have shown the complexities of his relationship with Rita Marley, his, his widow. You know, I, I, so I, I think that a good biopic will not shy away from the flaws of the people in question. I think Elton John did a really good job with Rocket Man. And when he was making yep. the movie and he was a contributor, he said, listen, I am imperfect. My life was imperfect. You can show <laughs> those flaws. I think he was pretty magnanimous about that. And I think that Marley's estate should have gone a similar route because, again, it is about the music. It is about his legacy. And he wasn't perfect, but who is? See, I liked Rocket Man, and, and I like books where somebody's able to actually, books or movies, where they're able to actually tell it warts and all. And, and when you bring in family members, maybe you should have an understanding on the way in. We're going to tell the story warts and all because he's a real person. And if the family members say, no, no, we want this to be the sanitized version, maybe you make it a different way. Yeah, and the recent movie Priscilla, which was made, I think it was based on the book by Priscilla Presley, maybe that one pulled some punches on Elvis as well. He was not a great guy at times, but it definitely showed a bit of his darker side and how he was manipulative of, of her as a much younger woman. So again, that's, a, that's something you needed to see in that story to really get closer to the truth. And listen, if it's your loved one, if he passed away years ago, I understand why you'd be reticent. I get that, but... If you're going to tell the story and work with the storytellers, you have to give them carte blanche. Don't you think that every single person is more interesting when you show their flaws? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of the reasons why Hollywood has struggled with Superman, the character in recent years, because he, in a way he is almost flawless. He is a Boy Scout. And I think that sometimes that can be hard for screenwriters to say, okay, how do we make this character interesting if he is so good and kind and noble? You know, it's the, <laughs> maybe we go too far, the, the Tony Sopranos and the Walter Whites of the world who are so flawed and so, and so uh, multi, and so textured in a way that it becomes fascinating to watch. By the way, there's another movie I want to ask you about that does tie back to, uh, uh, based on a true story, that kind of movie. But I want to ask you first about the latest Marvel movie, Madam Web. It seems as though every time we talk about the Marvel Universe, it's going more and more downhill. Is this? Are we kind of writing the epitaph of, of the Marvel Universe? Well, here's the good news. I don't think it can get worse than this. <laughs> I think we've hit the bottom. The, the, the shovel is scraping some sort of solid object on the ground. This is a terrible movie. <laughs> on the bottom of and the you know, ocean. Is, that's right. This is, you know, in a way it's Marvel adjacent because it's not Disney slash Marvel slash the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as they call it. It's a, it's a sort of a related story tied into that universe. And it's about a, a, a female hero of sorts, played by Dakota Johnson, who has the power to see the near future and then she could change what she does to change the future. So if something bad is happening, she can kind of you know, do something a little bit different to avoid that fate. 
it's quasi interesting, but the film has got really atrocious dialogue. The villain is maybe the worst superhero movie villain of all time. The actor involved in his name is escaping me. I think he was just poorly directed because his line readings are comically bad. Uh, the film is silly at times. There are plot holes plenty. It's just a bad movie. And I think the only saving grace here is it's so bad and so silly. Maybe we'll watch this in 10 years and laugh at it and, and, and sort of, you know, poke fun at it in a way where it becomes a cult hit because it's so bad that it's in a way good. It, it wouldn't be the first time that we had a bad movie that became a cult class. I want to ask you about something else. And I was led to this because I like the author Lee Child a lot and his Reacher series. And then, of course, I think both you and I were aghast at the idea that you're going to, you're, you're going to cast this principal character who's six foot five and is, you know, a big guy who spends a lot of time in the gym with Tom Cruise. So that was the movie. Then they came out with this Reacher series and the guy playing the character, I think, is, is a decent guy, Alan Richin. So I started looking him up he's coming up in a movie in a couple of months and i was really pleased to see it's tied to one of my personal heroes in real life and that's winston churchill and it's called the ministry of ungentlemanly warfare now i kind of throw this at you as a surprise but do you know anything about it because it looks like it's got real potential because it is based on real story they take a bunch of crazy people and get, and make them the first special forces soldiers during world war ii and uh, and apparently that this is what they really did way back in the day I saw that trailer like you did. I was very impressed. I believe it's Guy Ritchie, the director, who is yep. hit and miss, but more hits than misses. I'd say he's got some good potential for sure. He's done some good films in the past, including The Gentleman from a couple of years ago, which I thought was quite good. Yeah, I think Henry Cavill is in this as well. The mm -hmm. cast is eclectic. It does sound like a fun subject. I think they're taking a true story and, and having some creative liberties, as you could say. Well, and I think okay. it looks like a... It looks like a wild time, so I'm looking forward to it, too. It is still a few weeks away. I haven't had any screenings or anything like that, but I am curious. It is interesting. And listen, I think it'll maybe force a lot of people to uh, crack that history book and find out the truth behind the story, and that's kind of fun. Well, the funny thing is I kind of was thinking about when you, when you were talking about Bob Marley, and I thought, one of my heroes is Winston Churchill. And that guy is flawed all, or was flawed all day long. I mean, drank, smoked. I mean, you know, he did all the things, and, you know, his, his uh, political enemies hated him. His own party hated him almost as much as his enemies hated him. He had flaws left and right. They had to pay off his tax debt so he could be prime minister uh, and save the world, uh, at least in part during World War II. So you take flawed characters. That's okay. They're, they're actually more interesting than the ones where you hide all the flaws. Kristen Toto is the host of Hollywood in Toto, the podcast, and a regular on this program talking about movies and pop culture. Coming up in a moment, is World War III going to be over which country owns Antarctica? And we'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're, li you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. kids heal faster. Is your radio too far away? 
Just tell Alexa, play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Thursday. I got to tell you, this is some good news. Now, it comes, uh, the Biden administration has been responding to that terrorist attack by the Houthi terrorists. I know a lot of the mainstream media would rather call them the Houthi militants. You know what? This is a terrorist organization, and who's supporting it? None other than Iran. And we've talked about that, but the news that has come out in the last couple of hours, the United States has conducted a cyber attack against an Iranian military ship in the Red Sea. Now, why are they going after them? Because apparently this Iranian military ship, they're not just giving money and weapons to the Houthi terrorists. They've been supplying them with intelligence, meaning... You have a drone attack by Iranian-backed militias or terrorists in Iraq uh, that killed three U.S. service members in Jordan last month and wounded about three or four dozen others. And so the U.S. has retaliated by going after this Iranian military ship, not with physical weapons or what they call kinetic weapons, but going after them with a cyber attack on the ship. And they said... It was intended to inhibit the ship's ability to share intelligence with the Houthi terrorists in Yemen. And the Iran-backed Houthi, who control the most populous parts of Yemen, have launched a wave of exploding drones and missiles at both commercial ships and military ships in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden in uh, recent weeks, uh, calling it a response to Israel's military operations in Gaza. Well, now apparently there's been a cyber attack on that ship. We'll get you details as they're available, but first word of this only broke a couple of hours ago. To your calls now, let's start with John in Alabama. Hey, John, thanks for calling from Alabama. What's on your mind? Hey, you were talking about the uh, bill that they're going to do in Tennessee about not being able to sell the uh, cold beer and the the seltzers and stuff. Yeah, we made it the 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 the, the poll, the RX poll question. Should it be illegal to sell cold beer and seltzers, and will that make any dramatic difference in the amount of drunk driving? I don't know if it'll make much difference, but I always thought that if it's against the law to drink and drive, why do convenience stores get away with selling cold beer? It just makes it easier. See, I could. I don't drink a lot. Uh, I used to drink a lot of beer in my 20s and 30s, but I don't drink much beer these days. I go for a, you know, a little glass of bourbon now and then. But I could see an argument both you know, for and against you. Why, why does the convenience store sell beer? You and your friends say, hey, let's go to the beach or let's go to the mountains or let's go to the oh, river. And yeah, you say, let's pick up beer. some beer on the way so we can sit on the riverbank and have a beer or two. And then if you're not intoxicated, get back behind the wheel or have somebody be a designated driver. You're going to cut all those people off and say, no, you can't buy it because of what you might do. John, I'm just saying that cold beer being sold at a convenience store, you can buy all the hot beer you want. You put ice on it, then, you know, you're making the decision to make it cold and all that. Here in Alabama, the convenience store, the person selling the beer. Yeah. If they sell a person beer that's intoxicated, they could be held responsible True. for the wreck that they go down the road and cause. Right. That's a minimum wage employee. Why is he going to be held responsible? Because and all he's uh, I mean, doing is behind John, the desk. John, I mean, the argument I'd make in favor of that 
is if somebody walks into your convenience store and they're visibly intoxicated, and I don't know the laws in Alabama, but most states will say if you serve a visibly intoxicated person, so somebody comes in who's slurring his words, he's stumbling a bit, he smells of alcohol, and you say, yeah, I can tell that guy is intoxicated. The legal standard is usually visibly intoxicated. You shouldn't be selling beer to him. And, and you say, why is it the store's responsibility in the same way that if you want to sell guns you you have to sell them to people who are of age for that firearm in that state you have to make them fill out a bunch of paperwork and go through a background check so that's guns then you've got alcohol um and you say you at a bar or a tavern you can't serve somebody who's already visibly intoxicated now if the guy walks in stone cold sober and buys the six-pack and gets in the truck it's not your job to police him if he decides to drive down the road, sucking down one beer after another until he's drunk. They don't hold you that responsible for that. But they'll say, if the guy's already drunk, you can't sell him beer. And and that seems like a sensible regulation, doesn't it? Well, that does. But I'm saying, how many beers does it take for a guy to get to the potential of uh Comes in, buys a 24-pack, goes out in his truck, starts driving down the road, and just one after the other. And and at that point, he's he's breaking the law, but you haven't. But what if he's buying the 24-pack because he's meeting a dozen of his friends down to the beach or down to the river? And they say, we're going to go yeah. down to the river, we're going to spend the afternoon there, we're going to have a few I cold like beers. I like the ideal so. of them not having it cold. They have to ice it themselves. That way, it takes a while to cool down. You're pretty sure they're not going to be drinking a beer right away. Yeah, I, I can see the art. It just seems thin to me because the person who's the hardcore alcoholic, and believe me, I was a kid and my dad was a hardcore alcoholic. I don't remember him I used ever to drink drinking. A fifth of whiskey a day. So yeah. Well, he, my dad tended to be a beer guy, but he would always come home and get drunk. Uh, but he also got his share of DUIs. I've never had a DUI in my life, but but I'm aware of of how these people behave. But the hardcore alcoholic. The minute you pass his rule and say you can't sell cold beer, as Tennessee is considering doing in uh, what is it, House Bill 2845, they're saying if we don't sell it cold, the drunks won't won't buy beer. Yeah, they will. They'll have a cooler on the back seat of their car, and they'll just buy us, or they'll leave the the six pack at home. They'll buy it at the convenience store, and when they leave home, planning to drink and drive, uh, they'll throw the cold beer in a cooler in their car, and they'll drink the beer anyway. But it will inconvenience a lot of people who don't intend and won't drink and drive, you know, and break the law because you say, hey, we're going to the beach. Ah. Oh, I forgot to bring beer. Stop at the convenience store. We'll buy some. When we get to the beach or the river or mountains, wherever you're going, uh, you pull the beer out. You have a few beers. And, John, for the average guy, I, I weigh about uh, a buck eighty-five. Um, the, the height weight charts will tell you, take me about three or four regular-sized beers to get to .08 in an hour. And for every hour that goes on after that, you should, you know, blood alcohol go down by about 0.02. So since 0.08 is the limit, um, it's going to take you about, imagine pounding down four regular beers in an hour. Um, and that would get you to 0.08. Uh, that guy probably sh- should not be driving a car. But if you, you go out to dinner and you have a beer and it takes, it will typically take you to about 0.02. You are well under the legal limit. Doesn't mean you're not intoxicated. There are people who are rightly prosecuted for driving intoxicated at .02. But for the most part, somebody has a beer uh, during dinner and then and then drives home an hour or an hour and a half later, 
they're not going to be anywhere near .08. John, thanks for the call. Let's go to Jay. Hey, Jay, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, how you doing, Larson? Love your show. Hey, Thank um, you. I'm just, reiter- I'm just reiterating on what the guy called yesterday about, about being a felon, not being able to get a job. Oh, it, which and is hogwash. I, I don't want I, – I, I would hate for people to even listen to that. I'm a felon. I'm an addict. I did 14 years in prison, been on drugs forever, got off the drugs. And, Good and for you. I, I make I make I make $40 now. My friends, well, I work with nice. people that, that make $40 now. I got friends that, that have went from one job, and they're making $70 an hour. And they've done 17 years. And I just don't want people that listen to your show to listen to that. Well, that's going to get them nowhere. I try that, to push know. back. And you know what? There was a young lady who wrote to me about her daughter. And she wrote to me after she heard what was said yesterday on the show. And she said, and her name is Barbara. She said, my daughter is celebrating 22 years clean and sober. She spent time in prison for a felony, but she turned her life around. She now has a six-figure job. So she makes somewhere north of 50 bucks an hour. She has a home. All the people she surrounds herself with are clean and sober. And it didn't stop her from getting a six-figure job. So I figure when people tell me that if you have a felony, you can't get a job, I think that is garbage. I think it's untrue, and I think you ought to work as as uh, hard as Barbara's daughter, uh, Barbara's daughter does. Back in just a moment, you're listening to the Lars Larson Show. The group called Less Government and Seton. Welcome back to the program. How are you? Fine. Was that bumper music for Fannie Willis? Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it should be. Actually, the devil, I think the devil went down to Georgia. She Come did. On. And you know what? Um, I, I need to get our parody guy, Jim Gossett, to do a song out of that because I need to go back. She gave a lot of her testimony today since you brought up yes. the, the, the Fannie uh, from Georgia. Um, and one of my friends, Ari Hoffman, said... Uh, it, it, it's like she was one of those contestants on Bravo on one of those reality shows who's not going to get another season. And she said, and because she was, she was one of the craziest witnesses I've ever seen in court. <laughs> and she was combative and she was shrill. And, and you're like, why don't you just admit it? You gave a pile of taxpayer dough to your boyfriend. And uh, you gave it to him because he was your boyfriend. They got down to arguing about, you know, when she she would she wanted to know the definition of what they considered her home, and the 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 prosecutor or the questioner finally went to what I call it. You say, well, okay, how do you define home? I say where you put your head on a pillow to go to sleep most well, she, nights of the month. She can't know because she can't know because she's not a realtor. No, um, she, <laughs> to paraphrase yeah. Katenji Brown Jackson, yeah, yes, and 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 I'm going to make a really obscure '70s reference. She's Fanny Red Flag. Remember from from <laughs> the Gong Show. Yep. Um, I mean from from uh, Match Game. Sorry. Um, but anyway, yeah. Look, she, it's completely absurd. Uh, you know, there's there's the, the the boyfriend's testimony was basically, yeah, we did this, and because he doesn't want to go to prison for lying. Nope. Um So so I mean, it's it's just this is just the theater of the absurd. We just had pro-lifers go to prison for 11 years for praying in front of an abortion clinic and this person's an elected an elected uh, law enforcement officer in georgia it's just absurd 
Well, and the thing I haven't had answered yet, they keep saying she could be disqualified to be the prosecutor. Does that blow up the entire case, or does it mean it just gets handed off to some other prosecutor? Well, they'll, they'll undoubtedly hand it off. They don't want the case to go away. Um, uh, they, they can argue, and you can, uh, reasonable people can argue. Uh, I don't think the case has any merit, but the merit is not affected. The merit of the case is not affected by her clown show. No, and and, and I think that the case is mostly about First Amendment free speech. But if they want to keep pursuing, but how is it possible that you get people in high levels of responsibility, like the district attorney for one of the major counties in Georgia, who can't keep it zipped? What is the problem? Well, it's well, they're just because the was she was she a George Soros person? I can't remember if Soros actually put money into his, although now he's putting money in radio. Sounds like he wants he, to buy. He's bought a it's, bunch of radio stations. Yeah, well, yeah, he, yeah, he, he bought Spanish, the debt. And he'll end, yeah, but isn't this amazing? Because we are becoming more like a third world country. When you hear about uh, re- revolts in third world countries, routinely, especially if it's some little banana republic, they always say, they, and the rebels have taken over the local TV and radio stations. That's well, right. I guess George Soros yeah. says, if it works in banana well, republics, Zelensky, why not here? Zelensky did it. He, he closed a bunch of opposition um, yes, media stations. Um, and and um, uh, when... Uh, Hugo Chavez took over. He, he took he took over a bunch of radio stations. People don't remember him. He was the communist that took over a very successful Venezuela and ran it into the ground. And of course, as I said, well, one of the reasons I said uh, I moved to Belize was if I'm going to get third world service, I'm, I, I don't want to pay first world prices. By the way, the, since who, you br- you brought up Fannie Willis, so this is your fault. Yes, but it turns out there is a Belize connection. In the Fannie Willis case, Are you uh, they aware went of on this? vacation because it's a great country. No, speak. no, more than that, there is physical evidence. Apparently, uh, in the receipts they got, they show that Fannie Willis or Nathan Wade, her boyfriend, who was being paid by the taxpayers, got a tattoo. You can't tell which one. It was a seventy-dollar tattoo. Now, I don't know. I don't have any tattoos, but if I don't know how much of a tattoo seventy bucks buys you in Belize. I mean, maybe it's your entire body. Maybe it's just one little thing. But apparently, one of them has a tattoo. Maybe both of them, if they, you know, if seventy bucks will buy you two. I mean, maybe they cut a couple of matching tattoos. But that that has been raised. And you say, well, you can't use tattoos to go after her. Well, apparently, right now. Fannie Willis's office is prosecuting a case against a gang member where tattoos are a key part of the the evidence. So she's going to have a tough time arguing well, her way out of that. Did she cut right off? Did, she, did the government pay for the tattoo? Well, that's the next question is it appears that the government money may have gone to buy the tattoo. And then the first question my wife Tina asked, because Tina doesn't have any tattoos either, she says, where is it? And I said, well, it's clearly somewhere you can't see it uh, in in her appearances on television. So I'm guessing it's somewhere, and I guess you just have to leave it to your imagination where it is, or if maybe I, if I can't if I can't see it on TV on her, I don't want to see it. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, um, the, the, the the interesting thing about Belize, and I'm sure this is true in a lot of third world countries, is if the uh, if the good or service is from the U.S. Or geared to the U.S., it has U.S. prices. If you buy local, it's incredibly cheap. If you buy Cheetos, it's very expensive. 
just to now, be does that mean that if I, I buy would, a local tattoo in Belize, that they're doing it with a piece of a pop can that they picked up on the beach and and no and made no, the, no no they, no? <laughs> I know a lot of I know a lot of I don't think it looks particularly good, but I know there are a lot of black guys down here with tattoos, and so I think this I think seventy dollars gets you goes very very far in Belize for in the tattoo parlor. Without again, I don't have any tattoos either. I don't know. But I, I, there are a lot of locals, Belizeans, with tattoos. So that means it's probably cheaper. So they got well, and, and, and like you said, for bucks. can you believe this is the clown show? Though you've got Donald Trump, who simply says, "I want the votes counted," and 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 then he's being prosecuted for free speech. And then the woman who's prosecuting him, who ran on prosecuting him, can't resist the notion of shoveling several hundred thousand dollars, six or seven hundred thousand dollars to her new love interest, who was inconveniently at the time still married. So they go on trips and then they buy tattoos and and all of it comes down to is she disqualified as prosecutor? And what happens to the case now? Well, yes, and and, and again, I, I I hope that no one asks for any further evidence of the tattoo. No, let's um, let's hope not. But I mean, this wouldn't even work as a Tarantino movie, would it? No, no, Tarantino writes much better than this. Um, <laughs> no, he's a much better writer than this. This is bad writing. Um, you know, this isn't a television show. This is a bad television show. Um, it's just it's so comically bad that you can't possibly. Take it seriously. Now, like like we discussed before, I don't think any of her idiocies do anything to the underlying case. I think the underlying case is ridiculous on its face anyway. But I, I'm sure whoever succeeds her, if, if she indeed has to go, is going to pick up right where she left off. Well, so but, but imagine Vore Dyer when they pick the jury, if they ever get to that point, and they have to start asking the jurors, do you have any tattoos? Have you heard about right. any of the participants in this case having tattoos? And it'll get even crazier. you got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Now, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson and Joe, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. That terrible shooting in Kansas City. I don't want to share something with you. It's a soundbite from the man who tackled one of the shooters. Police now have three in custody after yesterday's killing. Uh, one person died, and at last count, it was 20 people who had suffered wounds or injuries. And uh, I'll get to the hero here in a moment. But I want to tell you something. I've been hearing people's conspiracy theories and all that. I told my producer, Joel, last night as we were watching, because the incident had just happened hours before uh, we went on the air. And I said, my best bet is that this is the result of some kind of uh, activity involving, I would think, gangs. Uh, because who else goes to an, a public event like that 
Uh, I carry a gun all the time, but I don't go anywhere and shoot people. On the other hand, gangs or other kinds of criminals, uh, they do get involved in shooting their competition and rival gangs. So if I had to guess at this point, I'm not seeing a lot of reporting on a Thursday night about, de- you know, definitively what they've found. Now, I'm sure that the police, because they have actual suspects in the Kansas City shooting, uh, that they are going to be very careful about what they say. And I and I would applaud that. I mean, while I would always like more information about what happened, especially in an incident which so very many people were wounded and at least one person has died, uh, I want them to be careful because I want them to go to court with a solid case against these, as I understand it, two juveniles and one adult. I don't want them to mess that case up. But I really admire this man. Because this is the man who tackled one of the shooters. And he acted very, very quickly. Take a listen to the way he tells that story. One guy was hollering, saying, you know, stop him. Or catch him, you know, tackle him, whatever. And he's just just bailing, running. And out of nowhere, I heard that guy hollering. So I'm just like, okay, well, I'm right here. And I just, I never think about it. I just... A reaction. I didn't hesitate. It was just, just do it. So I went to go tackle him, and another gentleman did the same thing. And as I'm tackling him, I see his weapon either fall out of his hand or out of his sleeve because he was wearing a long jacket or like a Carhartt. So when I seen that hit the ground, I'm like, oh, you know, we got to take this guy down. And so, like I said, I did, and another good Samaritan did, and we held him down. And it seemed like forever but it probably wasn't it was like 30 seconds holding him down and me and the other gentleman and hollering at ongoers you know where's the cops where's you know get the cops over here get the cops over here you know we got him we got him now i want to tell you something every time i hear one of these instances i think to myself i hope that if i'm ever confronted with a situation like that that i'm able to act as quickly have i ever had that occasion no i haven't Am I worried about whether or not I'd react the right way? I would hope that I would. But could I tell you definitively that I would? No, I can't. And there is another thing in the back of my mind. I can remember cases over the years where somebody is chasing a man who's stolen a woman's handbag. And in one case, the guy who stole the handbag from a woman as she's walking down the street, the bad guy turns around to the man pursuing him, pulls out a gun and shoots him. And in that case, the man actually died. I mean, there is real hazard. In this case, this guy got the drop on the bad guy and got him to the ground. But it could have ended differently. I don't say that to dissuade anybody from doing the right thing and stopping people like this so the police can quickly take them into custody and then begin the investigation. And if they were the ones who committed the crime, and it sounds like in this case they've got a pretty good case, um, then I hope they get convicted. And I hope the judge throws the book at them. Now, lately, it has not worked out that way in too many big American cities. And that brings me to this. The Daily Mail is reporting as of today, the United States is on course for another year of bloody gun violence. 80 people killed in mass shootings this year so far. The Gun Violence Archive, which I don't entirely trust because it's backed by a bunch of liberals, shows that 81 people have died in mass shootings. Now, the problem with the term mass shootings is that it's used both for what happened yesterday in Kansas City at the Chiefs' celebration of their Super Bowl win. It's also used to describe 
when some ordinary gangbanger, and maybe that was the case here, maybe it wasn't, when some ordinary gangbanger decides to do a drive-by shooting as retaliation against a rival gang. Now, there have been 49 mass shootings so far this year. Again, as defined as an incident where four victims are shot, either injured or killed, not including the shooter. Now, that's not a bad definition, except it includes a lot of just ordinary criminal activity where rival gangs try to get even with each other, but it also includes the incidents in which somebody deliberately goes to a place, targets innocent people, and goes there seeking to kill. I have a feeling we're going to find out that this was just uh, the settling of some kind of gang score uh, between rival gangs, and that's what we're going to find out about that. Glad to have you with me on a Thursday. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every night at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our poll on X, my producers and I put up a brand new question every day. This one comes out of Tennessee. Tennessee wants to address the problem of drunk driving. I think there's a way to do that. I don't think this is the way to do that. I don't think it's going to do much good. They want to make it illegal to sell cold beer and seltzer at retail stores because they say if we don't sell it cold, then the people who are inclined to go get drunk and drive will not go out and get drunk and drive. The bill was actually introduced at the end of January by a couple of reps, Ron Grant, a Republican, and Senator Paul Rose, another Republican from Covington, both of whom have been involved in previous alcohol legislation. Is this actually going to make a difference if you simply say, well, if you're a drunk driver, if you're somebody who drinks and drives regularly, and I've shared with you that my dad, who's passed away some time ago, was a hardcore alcoholic, never gave up the booze. But would it have slowed him down much at all if the convenience store said you can only buy warm beer and you're going to have to throw it in a cooler? Yeah, it might slow him down a little bit. I don't think so, though. And would it be an inconvenience for all the legitimate consumers of alcoholic beverages? And I don't mind one now and then. But if you decide we're going to the beach or the river or the mountains and you say, let's stop and get some beer. I'm sorry, we can only sell you warm beer. You're going to have to throw it in your cooler. Yeah, that's a quick solution. But is it actually going to make a difference in drunk driving? I'm skeptical of that. And I'm willing to be persuaded otherwise, but that would probably be a naysayer. 866-439-5277. Today's poll on X is found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I join the group. You should, too. Just go to amac.us or 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Coming up in just a moment, did House Republicans make the right move in impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas? We'll talk to our favorite guy, Bob Barr, in just a moment. It's X 
exercising the right to free speech every day. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I've been looking forward to talking to my friend Bob Barr, former CIA analyst, member of Congress. And what position are you in now with the NRA? Are you, have you moved up from first vice president to president yet? Is that going to happen? It uh, it should happen in May at our okay. uh, next board meeting. Right now, I am the lowly position of first vice president. <laughs> I got to ask you though. I mean, because because you're from, from Georgia, what the heck is Fannie Willis? Have you watched any of this woman's testimony as she tries to defend the idea of shoveling hundreds of thousands of dollars of the taxpayers' money to her paramour? Uh, you know, who who was apparently still married inconveniently at the time while she's trying to prosecute Donald Trump. I, I, I actually watched a great deal of it while I was working in my office uh, today, Lars, uh, and uh, was I mean, it was it was quite the show. I mean, you had her 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 ex-boyfriend uh, sweating bullets on on the stand trying to, you know, parse words and appear like he was OK when he really wasn't. Uh, and then you have her uh, charging into the courtroom and taking things over, uh, uh, you know, talking about bundles of cash that she keeps lying around her house. And the one disappointment that I had today was the fact that uh, the judge never did anything to control this woman. I mean, she was uh, shouting back at the uh, at the uh, lawyers uh, and uh, waving papers around and you know, basically telling everybody where to go, and the judge just let her do it. Well, and I mean, if she's got bundles of cash laying around her house, I'm guessing that being a prosecutor in Georgia pays better now than it did when when you were a U.S. attorney. <laughs> well, not not only that, but uh, you know, she said, "Oh, this is uh, simply because my my dad always told us that if you're if you're a woman or a single woman or something, you need to keep some money around," and then she tries to you know, explain how she was giving all of this money in cash to her former boyfriend to pay him back uh, for half of everything that they did, including these, these trips overseas. And she just sort of slushed this off. Well, sometimes I might have as little as a few hundred dollars lying around, and then other times I might have ten or $15,000 lying around the house. So, you know, it was so easy to just pay him back in cash. I mean... I, it, it would have been one thing if this were before a jury. I can't imagine any jury, even a, even a jury in her jurisdiction, buying this nonsense. Uh, and I hope the judge makes the right decision. But, man, uh, he just let her go on and on. Maybe he was just giving her enough rope to hang herself. I don't know. Well, that's what it sounds like, Bob, because my favorite quote of the day was, Where's Belize? I mean, she went on a trip to Belize with, and may have had a tattoo too. I mean, if if we as if we needed it to be crazier than what it is. Where's Belize? <laughs> what continent? I'm not being funny. I don't know. I've been to Belize with him. I've been to the Bahamas with him. I've been to Aruba with him. Don't embarrass me. I'm not sure what continents those are on. <laughs> Holy cow! Is she? Yeah, it's she a lie. It's a lie. Bright. It's a lie. And you're not going to tell me how to pay my bills. I, it just it doesn't exactly speak well. For the prosecutorial community, I'm wondering what her fellow DAs think. This woman's in charge of what? Uh, isn't Fulton County the most populous county in Georgia? 
if if I believe it is, Lars, I believe it is, and of course it's you know it incorporates uh, the city of Atlanta, so it uh, it's an extremely important jurisdiction, uh, and you know I've. I haven't practiced uh, in Fulton County in, crim- in criminal cases for quite a while. I have in the past, though, uh, and I've I've worked with district attorneys, uh, you know, all over Georgia and in other states. Uh, and this had to be an, an embarrassment to her staff to have their boss uh, one put herself in this kind of situation where she has to testify about this stuff and then to have her make such a, a fool of herself on the stand. And this was on national news. Well, and, and I, I want to get over to Mallorca's, though, because the, 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 the show does go on. And, and I want to ask you about what happened this week with the Congress finally impeaching Mallorca's Homeland Security Secretary. And I want to know if you think the Republicans made the right move. I've defended it and said, no, I think I think this is the right thing to do. You got to hold him accountable whether the Senate holds a trial or not. So what's your take on it? Uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, I had to face these and still to this day face these same questions about whether or not it was appropriate to to impeach uh, Bill Clinton, and I was, you know, one of the first to call for that, and was one of the prosecutors uh, over on the Senate side. And I said, absolutely, this, whatever the Senate does, that's their responsibility under the Constitution to uh, to try uh, the uh, the president. It is a separate responsibility that the House has, and the responsibility that the House has, whether it's Bill Clinton or Donald Trump or Alejandro Mayorkas, is to say this person, in our best judgment, uh, may not have committed a crime, but has violated the public trust and engaged in activities that are of sufficient magnitude uh, to warrant removal from office. Uh, And to me, if any cabinet secretary warrants removal from office for not just ignoring the law, but deliberately flouting the law and trying to find ways not to enforce the law, it is Alejandro Mayorkas. No, I think this is entirely appropriate. I'm talking to Bob Barr, former CIA analyst, member of Congress, and and uh, first vice president, still in that lowly position on the board of the NRA. Well, Bob, because I had a couple of people email and say, Lars, you're 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 taking aim at the wrong person. It should be Biden. And I said, yes, but if if a president can go to a cabinet secretary, any of them, secretary of state, whoever it happens to be, and say to them, I want you to do these things, and you say, you know, to yourself, but these are illegal things. They violate the Constitution, and they're not good for the country. That person, if they think the president is wrong, doesn't just salute and say, yes, sir. They say, I'm not doing that, boss. If you want somebody to do that, I'm going to have to tender my resignation. None of these people is worried about paying the rent next week. So he could have said to to Joe Biden, I won't do it. But it appears that he's in he's in this and believes that the border should be opened up wide as well, whether it's good for Americans or not. And it seems like it's demonstrably not good for Americans right now. I don't think any person who is actually alive or has breath in them, Lars, can come away with looking at what is happening on our southern border these days with any conclusion other than the fact that this administration is deliberately and purposefully, as a policy, allowing people to come across the border without any restrictions whatsoever, not only without any restrictions, actually helping 
illegals come into our country as the uh, the, the border uh, agents are doing. And Mayorkas is telling them, don't enforce the law and do these things to get around the law so you don't have to enforce it. That's what is impeachable. Okay, I want to ask you a congressional question, though. Is there a way, par- a parliamentary maneuver or whatever, that would allow uh, s- some of the players, either on the Senate side or the House side, to force the Senate to have a trial? And if the Democrats want to vote uh, you know, and say, no, my orcas did no wrong, I want them held responsible so that they have to say, no, we've decided that he hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, but I have a feeling they're going to dodge this. Is there any parliamentary maneuver that would that would effectively force the Senate to have to take action on this? That's actually a very good question. What they what they usually would do historically with judges, for example, is not have a trial in the Senate on the floor of the Senate, but they would uh, have a committee handle it. But uh, I don't think that there is any way that the House can force the Senate. Uh, to try a case, uh, it is the Senate's responsibility, but, uh, Lord knows they, uh, they avoid taking responsibility for all sorts of things, Laura. So I, I think you may be right. And I well, the, can't, you know, it wouldn't I, surprise I, me if they don't. I think this is one of the things that confounds people, and we're going to have to wrap it here in a second, Bob. But they, they say, well, is, doesn't the Constitution say after impeachment there's supposed to be a trial? And I say, yes, it does, but there's no enforcement mechanism. So, yes, it's their job. It's their responsibility. They're directed by the Constitution. You have a trial, and you decide whether or not the person should be removed. But apparently, if people want to just dodge their responsibility, they're allowed to do that. That's Bob Barr, now the vice president of the board at the NRA. And, Bob, we always appreciate your input. Back in a moment with your calls. you got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. for more in this world? Broadcasting the sound of freedom. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Conspiracy Theory Thursday. It's a pleasure to be with you. I wanted to share this email I got from Forrest who writes in, Lars, What do you want to bet the Kansas City Chiefs celebration shooters already have a history of repeat violent criminal offenses that should have kept them in custody? Probably not in prison because two of them were juveniles. Violent criminals are responsible for their own nefarious behaviors, but they are being enabled by weak prosecutors and soft judges. It's not a gun problem. The real problem is the lack of vigorous, certain prosecution and hard time behind bars. When it comes to repeat violent offenders, it's long past time. Get tough, lock them up, throw away the key. Signed, Forrest. Now, Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I saw a headline literally a few minutes ago about what we know about the shooting in Kansas City. And they said, we have the motive. Well, all the police are saying at this point is they're saying it was the result of a personal dispute between different people that ended in gunfire. Well, that's not exactly something that explains what was going on. Were these people members of rival gangs? Uh, were they fighting over uh, a romantic uh, involvement with a young lady? We don't know. But it was two juveniles and one adult who are going to be charged in that case at this point. 
Now, could the police include more people in that? They could. But I agree with Forrest. If they'd go out and say to people who commit criminal acts in their city, whether it's at a big celebration like this or at a more obscure time and place, you're going to see the full weight of the law come down on you when you take these kinds of actions. That's the bottom line. And if you're not willing to tolerate that, going to prison, going to jail, being convicted, having a felony record, it will be interesting to see, especially in Kansas City, I don't know the laws of Kansas City at all. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm not, uh, I don't know the laws there. I'm not familiar with them. I hope that they're willing to take juveniles. Two of the three suspects are juveniles. I hope they're able to charge them as adults. My feeling has always been that not just feeling, but my position on this issue has been if you engage in adult acts, if you shoot somebody, if you rape somebody, if you murder somebody, if you commit an assault on somebody, the states that have decided to treat people like that as children, I think are absolutely dead wrong. And they've only made the problem get worse by not taking the kind of actions that will actually stop it. Let me go first to Doug. Hey, Doug, welcome to the Lars Larson show. What's on your mind? Uh, thank you, Lars. Uh, I, I agree with the earlier discussion that, that greed and, and lust are deadly sins. I, I truly agree with that. Greed and lust. Greed I don't remember bringing up greed and lust. When did you hear that, Doug? Uh, the discussion with uh, Bob Barr. The, hmm. those, oh, those he may have ideas yeah. being, okay. being discussed. Uh, anyways, um, uh, as far as lust is concerned, I, I believe that the only purpose of, of sex is trying to have children. And in fact, if procreation only, only? Children, yes, that, that, that's its only purpose. And, mm-hmm. and if somebody doesn't wish to have children, whether married or single, I believe that that person should abstain from all things sexual and allow the emotional tears to come out from whatever past trauma is causing them to use sex. What percentage of the population do you think shares that point of view? Because I imagine it's fairly small. Well, what I'm talking about is we live in a sick society. And if we don't start looking at what are spiritual truths, what is actual truth that's going to bring us health and well-being, that's going to bring us health and longevity, um, we're going to continue slaughtering each other. And in order to do that, we have to, like, I believe truly that science and religion are one process. That we, we have to look for spiritual truth, both in terms of science and in terms of religion. Science and religion are one process. And we're going to have to start doing that now because literally we're at each other's throats. There's, just, there's so much violence happening that we don't understand that what is causing this violence is the trauma, the, un, the unaddressed trauma from our, from our past lives, from See, our, our past okay, lives. But hold on a second, Doug. Can sure. we agree that a very tiny percentage of people in any society on this earth, engage in violence, unprovoked violence against their fellow citizens. Because you're talking about as though all of us are subject to this, and you say, we're all at each other's throats. No, we're not. We have a very small, by percentages, criminal population who commit crimes. And we can solve that problem by incapacitating those people. If they've committed murder, uh, they should be subject to the death penalty. If they've committed serious crimes, they should be subject to being removed from society and confined in a prison or a jail for a length of time that's commensurate with what they did. But the vast majority of people do not involve themselves in criminal activity. So when you say we're at each other's throats, I don't see the evidence of that. Do you? Yes. Well, greed Where? and lust. 
both involve bloodshed. If, if somebody's practicing greed, it involves okay, bloodshed. I, no, you're changing the subject. I'm asking you, what percentage of all people ever commit a single crime? I would guess it's maybe, and, and I, I mean serious crimes. I'm not talking about going five miles an hour over the speed limit. Um, but but if, you, if you're committing serious crimes, what is that, 5% of the U.S. population, maybe? So well, the other 95% of us are not doing those things, Doug. Who hasn't participated in greed and lust? Who among us? And I'm well, I guess it depends on how, you, how do you define greed. If somebody says, I'm going to go work a job, and I want to have such skills that I can demand as much pay as I can possibly get, I say, good for you. You should go out and get the biggest paycheck you can get. Is that greedy? Well, that's making an idol of money, yes. No, it's not making an idol. It's saying I seek to get the greatest amount of pay for the labor and the skills I have. Is that being greedy? Or would you define greed as wanting one iota more than the bare minimum to keep you alive? Enough food, shelter, water, etc. to keep you alive. And anything beyond that is greed? I'm, I'm, yes, I'm saying that we are... Do you live your life that way? I, I am moving that direction, yes. Well, no, but because tell me I this. Found- Do you have more money than you need to provide for the bare minimum necessities to keep you alive? I, I'm still working out the balance there. I have very small income, and what I'm doing... I, I talked earlier about fasting Okay, but hold on. I want you to answer the question. Are we defining greed as wanting more than the bare minimum to keep you alive? I'm, greed is anything that causes harm to self or others. That's greed. greed well, is hold on. I don't, know, I don't think you can define it that way because, because by that stretch, you can make a lot of money without harming, harming uh, yourself or others. But try it on First Amendment Friday, Doug. I appreciate the call. Let's go to Andy. Hey, Andy, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, how's it going? I just calling to all these people keep saying we have a gun, a gun control problem. We don't have a gun control problem. I agree with you what you just said about the last that last caller. We have a mental health problem, society problem, and people the DAs letting criminals out of jail. Yep. I wish they would quit saying we have a gun problem and saying we're all bad people because we ain't. No, the, I mean, wouldn't you say, Andy? I, I don't know if my numbers are right. What percentage of of citizens in America out of 340 or 50 million people have ever committed a, any kind of consequential crime. And, I, and by that, I mean, I, have, I, have I parked my car longer than they allow you to park your car at a meter? Sure. Have I ever driven five miles an hour over the speed limit? Yeah. Um, but have I ever engaged in theft, assault, uh, any of the? No, never have. And I, I'd, I'd venture to say the vast majority of Americans never have. And never will. It's a very small percentage of people who won't behave like they are part of a society where you you agree my rights end where if my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. And and if you live your life that way and you say, I'm not out to hurt anybody and I don't want anybody to hurt me. I think that's that's a large percentage of all Americans. Andy, thanks for the call. Back in just a moment. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Thursday. Coming up, uh, we got to talk about a few other things with a guest who's coming up next. And that is Homeland Security and John Solomon's going to join us.
brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Be honest. You're listening because you like what you hear, right? Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Thursday night. I love this guy, John Solomon at Just the News. In fact, just last night, I was sitting there, and a story comes down, and I thought, of course, this is a John. I can almost tell when I see the story. I say, that's got John. No, I'm serious, and it's about the grandkids. I want to get to the grandkids later. Yeah, Uh, sure. uh, but let's start with Joe Biden, his Department of Homeland Security, his impeached uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, and whether Homeland is actually tracking the potential terrorists sneaking across our southern border. The guy who can tell us about it is the man who founded JustTheNews.com. He is John Solomon. John, welcome back. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, listen, this is an important thing, because if you watch all the testimony in the last couple of years, every time we have a border hearing, you get this obfuscated, unclear gobbledygook answer from the Homeland Security Department whenever they ask, are you tracking these people? And you get, oh, we, we can, we have these things, but you never get an answer. Well, uh, if you're a friendly reporter at the Washington Post and, and you're talking to the Biden administration, you get a straight answer. How do we know that? A new FOIA that was produced by the legal action of the Protect the Public Test Watchdog, it's Washington, D.C., uh, civics watchdog they got the document and it's an off the record email what does it mean we're telling you this but you don't want to attribute it to us that's what they're telling um uh, but hey washington post yeah we don't check these people once they go to interior they're gone that's what it shows so they were willing to tell uh the washington post in an off the record manner what they've been having a difficulty telling the american country and its congress and its overseers but the short answer is no the second um, someone is trafficked to the interior of the country and they're out of the custody of the Custom and Border Patrol, even if they're illegal, even if they have a court date, the government stops tracking them. And that means most of the 8 to 10 million people that have flowed across the border illegally under uh, Joe Biden, the government has no idea where they are. And that should concern all of us. Well, it should, because, John, look, I, I know it's always easy to say something else is easy as long as you don't have to do it. But if I said, look, could Customs and Border Protection take fingerprints, biometric pictures of people, could they tell them you are allowed, you know, and you're you're here until your asylum hearing or your refugee hearing, uh, you're allowed to, you tell us where you're going to go, which city, and then you need to check in once a week, automated check-in of some kind on the phone, but we need to know where you are. And is that going to take, you know, some work on the part of Customs and Border Protection? And the answer is, yeah, but Right. But otherwise, you're letting people into the country that are a potential danger to the whole country, and you have absolutely no idea, and nor have you made any effort to find out where they're going to be and how to yard them back in if they decide to try to disappear. Yeah, yeah, that, that is, listen, this is a big question. And uh, last night I had an interview with Brandon Judd, the head of the Border Patrol Agents Union. And Good he man. said, listen, I've been telling, Con- yes, he is. He is. And all of the people that work in the Border Patrol, they're such amazing people put in an impossible circumstance by the dysfunction of Washington right now. He said of all the things that the Congress could make the case that Alejandro Mayorkas should be impeached, it's the fact that they are sending these um, illegal aliens into the interior of the country, and they're intentionally losing track of them. They're just not tracking them. He said it's far more dangerous, far more consequential, far more in violation of the law than anything else. He encouraged Congress to step back for a second, think about this, take this little revelation we had, and turn it in because the Border Patrol Union has been warning about this for four years. 
and not doing much of anything because Mayorkas has chosen not to do it. Yeah, that's willful noncompliance with the law, and it creates a security risk for this country. It's, it just doesn't. Any common sense American will go, of course, this is silly, but not in Washington. People in Washington can't seem to figure out how silly this policy is. Yeah, and it's funny. Uh, I don't even know if, if during the hearings they've had with him, whether they put the question to him, did the president tell you to do it this way? Because I guess as a cabinet member, it's just assumed that whatever the cabinet does is what the president directs them to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, listen, this flows from the president. And that's one of the questions I've been asking every member of the impeachment inquiry for Joe Biden. Hey, you just impeached Alejandro Mayorkas, but his authority comes from the president. The president has authorized this. And you know what? A growing number of members of Congress are now saying, yep, we're going to add it. If we get to articles of impeachment, Joe Biden, one of them will be um, uh, an article over border insecurity. And uh, James Comer said that. Andy Biggs said that. There's a large number of people now rallying around that idea. Uh, Jim Banks said that congressman who's now running for Senate in um, Indiana. The, uh, there's a growing sentiment that Joe Biden also has to be held accountable. You can't hold, hold Alejandro Mayorkas in isolation. His power and his ability to do what he did flows from the president. All right. Now, let me ask you about the grandkids, because I have a little custodial account into which I put money for my granddaughter. I love her uh, to death. Uh, and I don't take money out of it. Who's been taking money out of his grandkids' savings accounts or, or investment accounts? Yeah, so this is an allegation still, right? We want to make sure yep. it's yep. Be, still being investigated. But a very critical witness in the last couple of weeks told the impeachment inquiry, according to James Comer, about a new bank account, one that they didn't know was associated with Hunter Biden. And that witness suggested that some of the transactions they might find in that account were Money's coming from Joe Biden's grandchildren to Joe Biden. And Comer said, this is curious. Most grandfathers give their grandchildren money, not the other way around. If this is true, still to be validated, it would be of grave concern to the committee. And he said it's giving us more and more evidence why we're probably going to need to subpoena Joe Biden's personal financial records in the next few weeks. So it's still a lead, but it came from a very trusted Biden family insider, somebody who had access to Joe Biden's checking and savings accounts, and they're looking at it, It's uh, uh, and it could be grounds for eventually, you know, one of the things that this impeachment inquiry hasn't done, it hasn't subpoenaed Joe Biden's personal financial records, even though one of the big questions is, what did he get out of this? This may be one of the prodding moments. Well, because we know there are some connections between Hunter Biden getting all these millions and the big guy and his statements on the laptop uh, that I'm having to pay all the family's bills, et cetera. But is it possible Joe Biden was using his grandkids' accounts, trust accounts or bank accounts, as a way to launder the money? In other words, if somebody says, hey, I want to pay your dad some money, okay, well, don't give it to him directly, deposit it to this bank account or give it to somebody who can, uh, the, the child's mother, for example, uh, maybe the president's former or, you know, widowed uh, daughter-in-law. And you yeah. put it in their account, then I'll be able to take it out of the account. It seems like a slick way to launder money so that it stays out of, that, uh, you know, out of the view of the IRS and others. That is the exact question that Comer and the impeachment inquiry are. And by the way, there's a reason to believe that Rob Walker... One of the family uh, friends, longtime family friend, go back to the 90s with the Bidens. He's the guy that gets involved in the China CFC deal. He says when Hunter Biden got his million dollar share, he didn't take it as one check. He said, send a little bit here, send a little bit there. He was breaking it up and moving it around, including to an uncle and to, I think, his girlfriend at the time. And that seemed very odd. Uh, By the way, 
Uh, Rob Walker said Hunter Biden never before asked me to do that. That raised Rob Walker, friend of the Biden family's suspicions. That's why these questions that you're asking and James Comer asking, very important right now. And my favorite Latin phrase, mens rea, the guilty mind. You can find all the details <laughs> on all these stories at justthenews.com. Its founder is John Solomon. John, thanks very much. Uh, send your emails to me, talk at larslarson.com. Check me out on Instagram. And, of course, tell Alexa to play the Lars the Larson, Lars Larson, Larson Show. show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get to your phone calls and emails here in just a moment, but I want to warn you about something that's happening. It involves a guy that we talk about from time to time by the name of George Soros. He is currently an American citizen. He was a foreign national for the longest time. He has decided to play a really dastardly role, and I mean that seriously, dastardly role in American politics. He seems to want to tear down the United States of America, and I say that because George Soros has funded some of the most evil projects out there. For example, he has funded the election of district attorneys all over this country. Uh, He goes in and gives the campaign money or organizations associated with George Soros specifically have given the campaign money uh, so that DAs can run for office in various parts of America and then say, but I'm not going to prosecute certain crimes out of an interest of social justice or racial justice or some other kind of nonsense excuse for not charging criminals with crimes. Well, now we get to the inside baseball part. George Soros has decided to get involved in owning a massively big American radio company. It's not the one I work for, but it's uh, he's buying $400 million worth of debt in a company called Odyssey which would be transformed into stock in the new company that emerges from bankruptcy. Well, what does that mean? Well, that company owns about 200 radio stations around the United States of America, and some of them are talk radio stations. So you say, well, Lars, you have a dog in the fight. No, I don't have a direct dog in the fight, but here's my concern. In any kind of uh, adverse takeover of a country, I'm talking outside the United States, One of the first things that you might try to do if you were trying to take over a country is you would say, we're we're going to control the means of communications. Well, he's buying this gigantic stake in America's second largest radio company, 220 radio stations nationwide. Now, he has to do this publicly because Soros Fund Management has bought $400 million worth of debt in the company, and uh, as a result... At the end of bankruptcy, sounds like he's going to end up a, uh, owning a substantial portion of that company. And I'm concerned about what his agenda is because of the other things he's been involved in. 
He's involved in an organization called the Drug Policy Alliance. He provides funding for them. They advocate for legalizing drugs in America, which has not exactly done people any favors. It creates massive problems. So I'm concerned about where that's going. We're going to be keeping an eye on it and then find out. Apparently, Soros and the Soros Fund are not commenting on exactly what their agenda is, but there it is. So glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X. You'll find the question brand new every day at Lars Larson Show on X. You'll also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. Let's go first to Jason. Hey, Jason, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks, Lars. Um, a little bit of a conspiracy theory. Uh, we're only getting half the story, you know, it seems like in the news lately. The St. Louis shooting, for, for example. Um, Yesterday. Is this yeah. guy a Hezbollah sympathizer? Is this, is this a, a sleeper cell? Is this, is this that 100% um, chance that Trump was talking about with the terrorist attacks that, that he's expecting to, to sneak? I, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so at all, and I'll tell you why. Um, what do we know about what happened in St. Louis yesterday? Uh, I'm sorry, in Kansas City, Kansas City. So uh, so you have a you are talking about the shooting that happened during the parade and celebration for the Kansas City Chiefs uh, after the Super Bowl win. Right. Right. Okay. so so you have a shooting that happens when there's a large public gathering and the police take three people into custody. Apparently, two of them are juveniles. One is an adult. And what we're told, because the police aren't saying, or I haven't seen anything in the last couple of hours um, uh, on the story as far as an update that tells us what was the nature of the dispute between these people that caused them to start firing a lot of shots. One person ended up dead. About tw- I think it was 22 were said to be wounded as of last night. Today they said the number was 20, so that number is floating a little bit. Uh, but they said that four or five of them were really in very difficult shape, critical condition. And let's hope that all of them pull through. But what the individuals who were arrested in that case had to do with, you know, Hamas, why would you see a connection there? Um, it's a conspiracy theory. Okay. And I'm thinking that they're going to try to cover up the story. Um, it's similar to what was going on with uh, the story about the lady who walked into the church the other day and had... Hezbollah scratched on her rifle. No, she had she had Palestine that was that was scratched onto the side of her uh, AR-15. The, the UN in Gaza that that that's propaganda as well. You know. Well, now you change the subject to what to to what the UN's role in Gaza is. The UN's role has been to you know, I guess to put terrorists on the payroll, and they've done it very effectively. This organization they have called UNRWA it has about thirty thousand people on the payroll. And the vast majority of them, I think it's, it may be close to 80% of them, uh, identify with Hamas and identify with the terrorist organization. So basically, American taxpayer dollars, which fund most of the UN's operations and a lot of uh, UNRWA's uh, operations. And UNRWA is a weird animal all by itself because the UN has a high commissioner for refugees. And what does that guy oversee? He oversees all refugees on planet Earth where the United Nations, which I think is an evil organization, tries to help out people who are ref- who are in refugee status. And then you say, does he do all of them? Well, everybody except the Palestinians who claim to be refugees. They're really not. They're just squatters. And uh, and so they created the U.N. created a whole separate organization within its ranks 
to do the refugees so-called in Gaza and in the West Bank of the Jordan River outside of the control of the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees. Now, figure that out. Why do, why do the Palestinians need their own aid organization? And it's because they want to use U.N. dollars to pay the salaries of tens of thousands of people who are allied with a terrorist organization called Hamas. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me, and I wish we'd cut off every dime of funding to the United Nations right now. Do I think that's likely? Probably not, Not until at least until we have a Republican president and, uh, and Republican majorities in the House and Senate. But right now, we're funding a lot of this terrorism that goes on in the Middle East. Does that answer your question? It sort of does, but I think it's propaganda that they brought up the fact that the U.N. was involved right after the U.N. was mentioning that the attacks were becoming outrageous. I think that well, you're no. The response by Israel was outrageous. I don't think they 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 may have officially said, "Well, we we officially disapprove of the October seventh slaughter that took uh, more than twelve hundred lives." But they're I, I think they're saying that you know for PR purposes, they the UN very much identifies with the thugs and the terrorists of the Middle East, unfortunately. And unfortunately, American taxpayers are paying for it. Jason, thanks for the call. Back in a moment. Glad to get your calls on Conspiracy Theory Thursday. It's 866-439-5277. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. You know, when it comes to Hunter Biden, I've just absolutely no respect for that man, and not much more for his father, although his father hasn't, uh, I guess, fathered uh, children out of wedlock, uh, uh, got himself hooked on cocaine. In fact, I don't know. Joe Biden might actually seem uh, less like sleepy Joe Biden if he was on some kind of drugs. And for all I know, maybe he is. Maybe it's ADHD and he's suffering from that. But let's talk about Hunter Biden and about whether or not Hunter Biden's civil rights have been violated, which I find almost laughable. So I thought we'd get on Mariah Gondiro, who is vice president legal counsel with Advocates for Faith and Freedom. Mariah, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. You got to tell me, how in the world is it that Hunter Biden's attorneys are claiming that a man by the name of Garrett Ziegler has violated Hunter Biden's civil rights? What are they talking about? Well, um, this this lawsuit, in my opinion, is, is more about politics than it is the legal issues. They selectively chose to file a lawsuit against Garrett Ziegler because Garrett Ziegler happened to report on a potential form of compromise involving Hunter by dad. And so um, I think this is just a, a political retribution. I, I don't think it's, it, uh, I think it's a frivolous lawsuit. And they're claiming that Garrett Ziegler unlawfully hacked into and, and, and stole Hunter Biden's data. But, but that's just not the case. Information has already been circulated across the Internet. Um, Hunter Biden abandoned his laptop. 
Um, so Garrett Ziegler did nothing wrong aside from just reporting on information that is true and accurate. And just so people understand why Garrett Ziegler is the focus of this lawsuit, does it have to do with the fact that Ziegler used to work in the Trump administration for President Trump? Well, I mean, it's always, you know, as an attorney, I, I can't say that for certain, but it it just seems kind of coincidental that they're filing this lawsuit against Mr. Ziegler um, coming up into an election year. You know, they, they had this information a long time ago. They knew Garrett Ziegler reported on this a long time ago. And so for them to wait to file it now, it's, it's very questionable. Um, so I guess the public can draw their own conclusions. I guess the, the other thing I find laughable about this is the laptop has been in the hands of the FBI since, I think, 2019. They had it for a considerable period of time before it generated the story that came out in the New York Post that got throttled by social media, including Twitter and others, who didn't want the American public to see the story about the laptop from hell uh, just prior to the 2020 election. So... You know, the information's been out there. The man who got the laptop originally, it was dropped off at his computer repair shop, as I understand the story. And uh, he, he, after a period of time, he ended up owning the laptop because Hunter Biden wouldn't come back and pick it up. And, and, uh, and, and then after it, it found its way into the hands of the FBI and uh, copies of the hard drive with uh, Rudy Giuliani and with the New York Post, um, then Hunter Biden's attorney said, well, it doesn't belong to our client at all. He actually asserted that it wasn't his laptop. Well, now he has since admitted, yes, it actually is my laptop. It's full of, you know, pornographic pictures of Hunter Biden naked, Hunter Biden taking cocaine, Hunter Biden with prostitutes. I mean, all kinds of things. It factors into a number of his cases, including his purchase of a gun. So uh, can we even say that for sure that Hunter Biden now acknowledges it is his laptop and the embarrassing pictures on it belong to him. Well, if if he allowed it to fall into somebody else's hands who ends up owning it and, and then it gets shared with just about everybody, including the FBI and the New York Post, does he have any complaint at all? Mariah? How he kind of oh, can you hear me? Yeah, you I dropped off it, for a moment, it, but you were saying. It's interesting how he kind of flip-flops argument when it suits him. In one form, he says, oh, the laptop is not mine. In another form, he says, oh, the laptop is mine. Um, but one of the one of the positions we do make is um, that when he did unlock the laptop, he, he, he abandoned it. But regardless of whether he abandoned it, our client simply just received copies of the external hard drive. He never actually had access um, access to the laptop. And the copies were made not with Hunter Biden's permission because it didn't belong to him anymore. It belonged to the computer repair shop owner. And he made copies and apparently shared them with other people. It was his information to share. Is there any legal case? I mean, as a lawyer, is there any legal case to make if you have, as they call them, compromising uh, pictures of him in compromising positions. I assume that some of the videos with him uh, sharing time, spending time with prostitutes and taking drugs and all the rest of that stuff. Does it belong to you anymore? And do you have any kind of privacy interest anyway, if you've allowed it to fall into somebody else's hands? Well, our, our position legally is, is no, that, that he abandoned his laptop. Our client never unlawfully accessed any, any type of data 
But another thing that we're also addressing as a defense is that um, our client has a First Amendment right to report on these matters. It's, it's very well acknowledged, and the Supreme Court has, has long acknowledged that reporters have a right to report on significant matters of public interest. And I think that this is one of those examples when um, reporters should be reporting on this issue. I mean, this is an issue that implicates the president of the United States and potential foreign compromise. So he, w- our client was in his right reporting on this. And so there's no, no legal foul because, I mean, he'd, he'd already allowed all this stuff to fall into the public domain. And, and then if you say my rights have been violated, does he have to show he's actually that his reputation has suffered some kind of harm that he can explain to the court? Wouldn't he have to do that as well? He would, and he would have to be, be able to trace it back to Mr. Ziegler, but he can't trace any injury to Mr. Ziegler because, like you said, I mean, he, he abandoned his laptop. The information um, was therefore no longer his, and many other people have been reporting on on these issues, on, on Hunter Biden and what was on his laptop, and he hasn't filed lawsuits against all of the other uh, reporters that have reported on this he selectively chose certain people which i find again very questionable and and i draw the conclusion it's because those people are directly connected to uh to donald trump mariah thank you very much i appreciate the time that's mariah gondiro who's with advocates for faith and freedom let me grab this call from uh, gerald hey gerald welcome to the program what's on your mind well that for you i, I keep listening to all this stuff going on about trump yeah. One thing I've always been curious about is what are the Democrats afraid of Trump? That Why he's going to get reelected. That he's going to get reelected. Yeah. They know he's going to get reelected, and that scares the pants off him. I know, and and so many people seem to write letters about it to the newspaper. Some of them good, some of them bad, but uh, I just don't quite understand. And it's, I know it, they're afraid they, of it, but why? Why are they afraid? They are afraid, Gerald. And we know a lot more than we know when he first became president. The Democrats, the FBI, the CIA—they all knew that when Donald Trump got in, that their power, their political power base, their ability to fleece Americans was going to be severely compromised by Donald Trump. They're scared to death of the guy because. He's been outing these people for some period of time. We now know that both the CIA and the FBI were allowed to be politicized. And by who? Well, by some of the power, most powerful people in America. Barack Hussein Obama, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and others. I mean, they are scared to death. When this guy gets back into office, I think some of them are going to be headed to jail. And at the very least, the reputations of the rest are going to be severely compromised. Gerald, thanks for the call. Back in a moment. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter. Now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed. All the other social media we put up, every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
The Lars Larson Show. This is McGruff the Crime Dog. Saying the things you wish you could say. More with lies. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly. we got to talk about what's going on on Capitol Hill right now, because I'm reasonably sure that Mitch McConnell, who's never been my favorite member of the United States Senate, he and his team in the Senate seem to specialize lately in passing bills from the Senate uh, that are not going to go anywhere at all in the House, which means... The question comes to me, why Why would you do it at all? So I thought I'd talk to Alexander Bolton, who's a reporter with TheHill.com. Alexander, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. What is going on over there where they pass a border bill that was laughably outrageous? And you say, but the Republicans support it in the Senate, and it's dead on arrival in the House. And now the same thing may or may not be true of the Ukraine aid, although it looks like Speaker Mike Johnson has said, we're going home. We're going into recess. Uh, we're, we're not going to look at that thing. It has nothing. It doesn't address American border uh, security. So uh, uh, is the Republican job just to agree with Democrats in the Senate and then uh, pass through bills that aren't going to go anywhere and become laws? Well, where this all started is Kevin McCarthy. You remember him, right? The old yep, speaker said, said way back in September that any funding for Ukraine had to be you know, paired with, with some border reform, some border security. And um, the the House uh, passed a bill in May of 2023 called the Secure Our Border Act or Secure the Border Act. It had a lot of strong reforms in there, E-Verify, Build the Wall, Remain in Mexico policy, um, certainly some strong reforms there. But those reforms are never going to pass when you have a Democrat in the White House and a Democrat in control of the Senate. At least that's the argument that Mitch McConnell has made to his fellow Republicans. So he said, let's negotiate Let's get some border reforms. And the uh, the bill that he had J- James Langford, the Republican from Oklahoma, put together, um, that took four months to negotiate. And it got the endorsement of the National Border Patrol Council, which is you know an organization that endorsed President Trump uh, in, in the past elections. And it also got the endorsement of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, got the endorsement of the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial page. And so you know, McConnell made the argument, look, um, it's um, it's better than nothing. And by the way, you know, some of these asylum reforms in the bill are exactly what President Trump asked for when he was facing his own uh, border crisis, not nearly as bad as today's uh, back in 2019. So really what this comes down to is uh, Donald Trump made it very clear to the Republicans he spoke to, and I've spoken to them too, you know, he didn't want to give Joe Biden a win here. Now, was this Senate bill that he go as far as the House bill? Not at all. But McConnell said, look, we have um, divided government here, and so, you know, this is what we could do. And, um, you know, he, he, I sat down with him in his office yesterday. He thought that border deal was a huge success. Um, of course, you know, it didn't even pass the Senate because, um, you know, there was a backlash in the Senate Republican conference. They were upset about not being able to offer amendments. They had a bunch of reasons, but it didn't even pass the Senate. Now, this Ukraine funding bill, it did pass the Senate. It got 70 votes got 22 Republican votes. Um, what's going to happen in the House? I mean, 
Speaker Johnson says he wants to add border uh, reforms to it, but you know that kind of that's taking us back to September. I mean, we've we've been there, done that. So, um, if he wants to kill the bill and not bring it to the floor, he can try to do that. Um, will he face a discharge petition? Could Democrats force action on the measure? Maybe they can. We'll see what happens. Well, I guess the biggest objection I had to it, and you tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, from the outside, as somebody who doesn't work on Capitol Hill, I looked at that thing. And Langford, Senator Langford kept saying, hey, wait, don't believe this stuff on social media that's saying that it's going to institutionalize a large number of illegal border crossers every day. And then the details, he said, don't believe what they're saying on social media. Uh, you'll see it in a while. And they kept it under wraps. And when they finally unveiled it, it was exactly that, effectively institutionalizing 5,000 illegal entries by illegal aliens into America every day. That that that's a non-starter, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, you're characterizing in a way that the, the you know the critics who want to think this bill have characterized it, and so, you know, is is that true? What you said, you know, it's a little bit hard to, to know exactly. Now, what they're talking about is that the president's uh, emergency powers or the Secretary of Homeland Security's emergency powers to shut the border would only kick in once you have four thousand uh, migrant encounters. Uh, or a day, and that's a lot. But that's not to say that all those migrants are just being let into the country. What they're, what they're, they're will all, they're all being processed. That's essentially the the limit of how many folks can actually be processed at the border. The problem right now is there's so many people coming across that we can't even process them, and they're just being let into the country. It's just out of control, understaffed, not enough money, not enough equipment. This would have basically at least gotten you know four thousand people a day processed. And the point was to give them kind of speedy adjudications as to whether they had a legitimate asylum claims or not. Most of them don't. Ninety percent don't have legitimate asylum Right. Claims. So do, does that mean, Alexander, just to interrupt, does that mean that 3,600 of them would have been turned back and sent home? Because I, I don't get that impression from the Biden administration that they're sending the vast majority of these people home. Well, see, and that, I think, is where the, the, the proponents did a pretty bad job presenting the bill. They kind of left that question open, and they didn't really answer it. Now, Lankford, you know, he says that they, you know, the idea was that they would be processed immediately, quickly, uh, you know, within, you know, if not immediately, within a few months, as opposed to a few years, as we're seeing now, and turned back. Now, I think where the critics of the bill did have a point, they said, yeah, right, we don't, we don't believe it. And we don't believe that Joe Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas are going to, you know, are going to put in place a system that will turn all these people back. And they well, may have because if there. if they're here a few months, Alexander, and you say, OK, we're sending off in a few months, we'll decide your case. We're probably going to tell you, no, in all honesty, you don't have a legitimate asylum claim. You don't meet the minimum requirements of the law for asylum or refugee status. But go off to some other city, probably a sanctuary city, but come back so we can kick you out of the country. Aren't we, isn't it the simplest thing to say, I'm going to be skeptical that any of those people are going to come back? Well, and that was one of the questions that were, you know, that was presented and that was debated. Uh, So one of the proposals is you'd be giving these, um, uh, you know, these migrants cell phones and there'd be caseworkers that they'd have to check in periodically. But you know, we've seen ankle bracelets or ankle bracelet monitoring devices, you know, been tried in the past. They haven't worked. Um, you know, how quickly would they be adjudicated? Um, would they be, uh, you know, turned back, you know, within days, within hours, within weeks, within months? 
a little bit of that was kind of, you know, up in the air. And so I think that's why, and the reason it's up in the air, because a lot of it depends on how the administration implements it. And so the critics say, we don't trust Biden to implement this correctly. The opponents said, well, okay, but if, if Donald Trump wins the election, this will give him tools to actually, you know, deal with this problem. And I think even if Trump wins the election, you know, this this border may still be an issue, and it may not be so easy to fix because it's understaffed, it's underfunded, and these folks are, it's like a fire hose coming across the border, and we don't even have the personnel to, to deal with it. I think that's why the National Border uh, Patrol Council endorsed it, because it would provide more staff, more money to deal with the problem. It was not, a, it was not what the House Republicans were talking about. It wasn't H.R. 2, but it was, I think, at least from McConnell's perspective, and from the National Border Patrol Council's perspective, an improvement over the status quo, which is just do nothing, uncontrolled border. And does Biden have, you know, does he uh, deserve blame for that? Absolutely. Will he get hit hard in the election? Absolutely. But was Trump right to sink this bill to deny Biden a victory? A lot of Republicans think that was dumb because it would have actually helped alleviate the problem. And Trump could have still run against Biden on on uh, border security unless joe biden says hey your own guy signed off on up to four thousand or five thousand per day and we've got that so he's just as bad on the border as i am alexander bolton who's a reporter for the hill.com alexander it's a pleasure back in a moment i'll get to your phone calls and emails it's conspiracy theory thursday and you're listening to the lars larson show Guessing what he'll say next. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, uh, Tina and I have taken a trip to the grocery store tonight. We do that about once a week, and we usually go together. And, uh, you know, I push the cart and I carry the bags and all that good stuff. But when we get to the checkout stand, I know one of the things that's going to come up. And usually we're just about as angry about it as the checker is angry about it. They say, yeah. They got rid of those nice plastic shopping bags that used to be so handy. You know, the thin film ones, except the environmental greenies out there have decided these bags are terrible while they end up in the ocean. Well, maybe overseas, certainly not in the United States. In the United States, most garbage goes to landfills. It doesn't end up in the ocean. Now, in other parts of the world, there's a lot of plastic pollution that's in the water. But if you go out and take a look at the people who have actually made lists of where does most of that plastic pollution come from, an awful lot of it is fishing nets that not in this country, but in other countries, when the fishing net gets damaged enough, they just cut it loose and let it float. And does it probably kill sea life? Absolutely. But in the state of California, I thought this example was great because 10 years ago, 2014, state of California said, we're going to save the planet. We're banning those thin, disposable plastic shopping bags. Now, I want to stop for a moment. They call them disposable. But the fact is, is that every single one of those bags I've ever got got at least two uses, sometimes three or four, because they're incredibly 
handy to have around. Bring them home from the grocery store. They were a convenient way to carry your purchases. They didn't get wet if it was raining and fall apart like paper bags do. And then you could use them again and again and again. And not to be too graphic, but uh, if you have a dog or two in your household and you have to pick up on the lawn, they're handy for that as well. I kept that as clean as I possibly could. But what California said, we will get rid of these plastic shopping bags. We will cut down on the amount of plastic waste that goes to the landfill. Really? Guess what they found out? When they passed the ban, California was at that point putting 157,000 tons That's millions of pounds of plastic waste. 157,000 tons of plastic bag waste was going to the landfill. And what was true 10 years later? Well, the amount of plastic waste that was going to the landfill had gone from 157,000 tons to 231,000 tons. In other words, it went up almost 50%. And even when you take a look at the changes in population, The amount of plastic waste going into the landfill before the plastic bag ban, about four tons per 1,000 people. And 10 years later, it came out to almost six tons. It had increased again, almost about 50%. And why? Because when they got rid of the and banned the thin disposable plastic shopping bags, they replaced them, the stores did, with thicker plastic use single-use bags, and they made the problem worse. Uh, and this happens all the time. The Greenies have a policy. They say, we want to do things a different way. We're going to save the planet. And their different way usually turns out to be worse. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you're a naysayer, I'll put you right to the head of the list at 866-439-5277. And you can vote in our poll on X, brand new question every day. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show on X, also on our website at LarsLarson.com. Let me go to Al. Hey, Al, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, uh, so the former governor in Oregon passed the uh, ban the bag law. And I remember when we got rid of our thin plastic bags and they were replaced by the thicker bags. I put a caliper to the to the bags. The new bags are four times thicker. That means each bag has four times as much plastic as the ones that they replace. That is absolute liberal mindlessness. It is. And, and then when they in many states, they say, look, here's what we're going to do. Uh, when we t- make the the, uh, the companies go away from the thin plastic bags and they replace them with the th- the thicker plastic bags, Walmart has done that. Uh, they say, oh, and you can charge every customer ten cents for the bag. In fact, we're not going to make it optional. You must charge every customer. And Al, I got to tell you something. That one really gets under my skin because if I go to a store and I buy something, that is a transaction between the store owner and me. And I resent the government getting into the middle of that because I have a feeling most of the merchants, I mean, I'm sure that some of them are glad to get 10 cents a bag. But how did we get to the point where the government is ordering a company? You are not allowed to give this bag to the customer free of charge. You'll work the chart, the costs into the rest of your uh, operations. So the bag is going to get paid for by the customers one way or another. No, you must charge the customer an extra 10 cents. So now I get the checker. Most of them seem embarrassed to do it. They say to me, oh, how many bags are you going to use? And I'm sitting there with a whole belt full of groceries that are on that, you know, the, the sliding conveyor belt. And, and I look at them and I think, 
what am I, some magician? Like, I've got this stack of groceries, and you want me to estimate how many bags I'm going to use by the time I'm done bagging them. And I say, well, uh, six. You know, or g- you just give them a number so that they can punch it in and charge you an extra 60 or 80 cents or a dollar. And all of this where the company would be, I'm sure, happy to say, if a customer buys something from us, put it in a bag and tell them thank you. And then you get a, a retail clerk, and I kind of feel sorry for them. They're caught in the middle saying, do you want a bag? Because they know that some of their customers are going to say sure. Some of them are going to gripe. Uh, I don't tend to gripe too much about it to them, but I'll gripe about it to you. Why should they have to ask me, number one, do you want a bag? And and the under, unspoken comment is, and we're going to charge you for it because the government says we have to. Should the government be that involved? No. Hey, I'm grateful that I can still get the paper bags because I use them to start my wood stove every night. And I save them all year long and I have them the winter time. I love it. That is a fantastic way to do it. Al, thanks very much. You know, that's one of the reasons, because even though sometimes I disparage the uh, daily, what I call the daily dead fish wrappers, which is the newspapers of America, because almost all of them have adopted a liberal editorial point of view and a liberal news coverage point of view. So when you read the newspaper, you feel like you're reading a document from the Democrat National Committee. But one of the things the newspapers were handy for, I remember when there were times I'd have an entire cardboard box full to the top and overflowing flowing with newspapers. And we would use it to start, uh, at the time, our wood stove or our wood fireplace. And now, good luck trying to find any newsprint. The stuff is just not available. But just so you know, the numbers are from California. They banned disposable plastic bags. Don't let it happen to you if it hasn't happened already. And they said, we're going to cut down the amount of plastic waste. This is one of the things I'd like to see done with every single greenie policy. When they come to you and say, we're going to save plastic waste from going into the landfill, measure the effect 10 years later. If they didn't achieve the thing that the goal that they were setting out to do, then you go back to them and you say, it didn't work. Take back the law. Reverse it. Make it back the way it was. Or better yet, don't do it at all. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. Looking for a new way to get